everyone. Welcome to another Your Amigos podcast. Tom and I are here with our dear colleague and friend, friend Nick James, friend of the show, who's been on many times to talk a little bit about uh, radiotherapy in localized prostate cancer. We had Jim Cato on a previous podcast talking about surgery in the PROTECT trial. We're going to sort of pick up from there. So, Nick, welcome. We thought we'd start with the PROTECT trial. We, we talked with Jim about sort of his thoughts about it, and it's really a, a sort of treatment versus no treatment trial. And I'm wondering if we could just so, get your take as a sort of oncologist slash radiotherapist on what you think the big take-home points are. Yeah, so as as you say, it was, it was a three-way randomization, and um, Birmingham, where I was um, when it was recruiting, was one of the big recruiting centers for it. So we put a lot of patients through it. And um, uh, it was a three-way randomization between active monitoring or active surveillance, whichever you want to call it, surgery and radiotherapy. And essentially, they've just published 15-year outcomes from that. And the take-home was that the one, the 10-year and 15-year prostate cancer-specific mortality was about 1%, with no differences between the arms, even after 15 years. So, um, uh, but then if you look at the, the treatment versus no treatment part, um, around about half of the surveillance patients had had treatment in the end. So it's not treatment versus no treatment so much as deferred treatment for higher risk patients, if you like, with no treatment for the ones that either die of something else or don't progress. So it's a it's a fantastic um, study. It's, yeah, it's huge, multi-centre and everything. So it's, it's a very powerful study. And then, so what I tell my patients in the clinic if there is, um, I go through the, the risks and benefits of all three options. And there's a fantastic tool called PREDICT prostate. Um, if you just put predict prostate into, into Google, you'll find it. And it allows you to put in the patient's characteristics and it gives you a number of outputs. It gives you your 10 and 15 year chances of being alive with and without treatment for your prostate cancer. So uh, you can see that if you've got a high risk of death because you're 75 with comorbidities, there's not much point in treating your cancer. Whereas if you're 55, there's likely to be point um, because the benefit is bigger. And the other thing that that tool does is it goes through three key side effects. So one is bowel side effects, one is urinary side effects, and one is erectile dysfunction. And um, so what I tell patients is that um, essentially, because the survival looks very similar, is that they should pick um, essentially the set of side effects that suit them best. And of course, intrinsic to the side effects of no treatment are that you, you've got the anxiety that it might spread. And uh, but also with radiotherapy, you've got a bit of uncertainty about what the outcome is. You know, you've got six months of hormone therapy, the PSA drops, it then starts to climb a bit. You don't ever really know that the cancer is not coming back, whereas six months post-surgery, the PSA is undetectable. That's pretty much end of story in terms of treatment. I mean, Nick, so it, you're supposed to be Nick, you're supposed to be flying the flag for the radiotherapy team. So uh, <laughs> if you can make it. Yeah. You can make it a little bit more compelling. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, what ends up, what ends up happening is that I think the th one of the things I find a key driver here is erectile dysfunction. So basically, if you're in your 60s or into your 70s, your sex life is pretty much killed by surgery, whereas it, it won't be killed by radiotherapy other than whilst you're on the hormone therapy. So for men for whom sexual function is important, radiotherapy is a really good option. Um, for um, if you look at the urinary dysfunction, um, uh, most men will have a degree of leakage. They'll have to wear a pad or whatever, um, and that tends to go up with age. That pretty much doesn't happen with radiotherapy. 
the, the ones I shove towards surgery are ones where they've got substantial urinary symptoms already. Because for them, usually you get rid of the prostate will get rid of those symptoms. So it, it's um, it, there's not a simple one size fits all. Um, age is another factor, really. I think if you're a bit older, you recover less well from surgery, whereas radiotherapy is a pretty well-tolerated procedure, to be honest, with modern kids. Nick, I have, I have a couple of questions about this tool. Um, two things. Yeah. One is when it talks about side effects, urinary or otherwise, I mean, we talk about grade, yes. you know, grade of toxicity, but yes. patients don't understand it. So I'm wondering how it breaks it down into lay language so patients know chance of grade two or grade three. And my, my other question I'll ask at the same time is, yeah. you know, we talk about anxiety of active surveillance, but there's no real great way to measure that, right? I mean... It's, it's obviously Correct. individualized yeah. per patient. So I'm wondering if this tool or any tool can can quantify that just like we quantify other toxicities. Yeah, so so the answering the, the grading first, what it does is it picks a specific thing. So for the bowel toxicity, it picks blood in your motions, you know, several times a week, or I can't remember the exact wording, something like that, something that is unequivocally there or not there, and gives you your percentage chance of that. And, it, and you can pick three years, six years, nine years, 12 years, you can pick different time points. And for urinary dysfunction, um, the it's quite a low bar. So it says if you've got if you need to have wear one pad every day because the risk of leakage that counts as incontinence. And uh, you know around a quarter of patients having surgery and protect ended up with at least that level of dysfunction. So it, it doesn't go to grades and stuff in the sort of way we do it in trials. It goes it just gives you a specific hard thing. And then for erectile dysfunction, it's you get you get an erection sufficient for successful intercourse. Yes or no. So, because um, really you, you want to be able to do the whole deal, sort of half the deal's no, not much use really, is it? So um, it, it's, uh, it, that's how it deals with the toxicity. Um, the other thing about the anxiety, um, uh, yes, you're right, that is more problematic. If you look in active surveillance series as to why people pick treatment, like Laurie Klotz was one of the sort of great advocates of this and or still is, and um, uh, in, in his large series, around half the men who ended up with treatment did so because they chose it, even though they had no evidence of progression. So substantial numbers of men will find they find it difficult to live with the uncertainty and um, uh, how you, yeah, that's probably as good a way of looking at it as any, to be honest. Nick, a couple of things from my perspective. The first is that many patients are anxious about the long-term effects of this period of hormone therapy. How long should these patients have from a hormone therapy perspective? Is it three years? Is it one year? Um, and are there ways, ways of determining which treatment? Is it just LHRH agonists? Um, and, uh, and can you tell, determine which patients benefit the most? So, yes, to a degree. It's risk stratified. So if you've got low to sort of low intermediate risk, you've got a relatively low risk of relapse with just radiotherapy. So increasingly, uh, those men get offered radiotherapy with no hormone therapy. And with brachytherapy, also you get radiotherapy with no hormone therapy, and it's the same sort of risk grouping. For sort of high intermediate to high risk, you're looking at six months at the sort of left-hand end of that spectrum through to 18 months or so. I, I don't give anybody more than 18 months um, other than the very high risk ones where I'm giving them two years of abiraterone as well and two years of ADT. I think beyond that, 
you're you're increasingly harming them. And also, if you give very long durations, three years, say, substantial numbers of men never recover. So you've given them lifelong androgen suppression with all of the you know, side effects that go with that. And in terms of the data on that duration and the addition yeah. of an NHA amiraterone, what does that data look yes. like? So the, the only mature data at the moment with adding an NHA is from Stampede, and that's from us meta-analyzing two arms, the aberasterone arm and the aberasterone plus enzalutamide arm, and these were ultra-high risk, so PFA above 40, Gleason 8, 9, 10, T3, 4, and or note positive. And so these are off the right-hand end of pretty much all surgical series, to be honest. And, and these weren't in the PROTECT trial? These are, no, no, these are off the yeah. right hand and then to protect as well. And um, so they're a slightly different category, but the data from Stampede is pretty rock solid. I mean, it was a 40% reduction in overall survival, uh, oh, improvements in overall survival and a 50% uh, improvement in prostate cancer specific mortality with the two years of therapy. And the important thing about that is it was capped, all the therapy was capped at two years. So you have got the prospect of um, sort of antigen recovery after that. So that yeah, for that group of men, which you know, and uh, it's not an insignificant number, uh, we think that should well, it is standard of care in most countries. Um, yeah. hey, Nick, I have two two questions about that two years of ADT Abbey Stampede. Yeah. So, yeah, are there data yet on androgen recovery in in those patients? <clears throat> and I've also, of course, started doing this in clinic, and I have many men who get to twelve and eighteen months and say, "Hey, doc, I don't think I can take it anymore." Like, can I stop? Yeah, her? Enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, of course, we're, we're, in Stampede, we just picked the number 24 yeah, months. Sure. It seemed like a reasonable number. I mean, we didn't test one versus two, two versus three, and so on. By and large, that has been done with ADT only, though. And essentially, the longer you give ADT, the lower the risk of prostate cancer relapses, but the higher the risk of dying from something else is. So you've got to sort of stratify the risk and and quality of life is part of that as well i think you get diminishing returns from increasing duration so i think if you get them to 12 months they probably had most of the benefit to be honest and it'll take them another six nine months for it to wear off anyway i think we're probably overdoing adt i think is my feeling now we had a we had a very interesting day last week um, and we're presenting a lot of data on this in the coming meeting with the stampede translational group so we've got a shed load of different things and one of the things we've started doing is hooking up the patient's um, trial records with their long-term NHS outcomes data. So beyond the end of their trial follow-up, because uh, most of the original arms, we closed the trial follow-up a while ago now. And um, it, it, yeah, it's very clear that these men suffer substantial rates of pathological fracture, some of which is cancer, but some of it is not cancer as well. And that, that goes up to like 20% by five years if you're on sort of enhanced ADT, if you like, and your risk of cardiovascular yeah, death, for example, doubles if you're adding an NHA on top of ADT. So, so there, there are good reasons to not overtreat these people. So for the classic yeah. prostatectomy patient where radiotherapy is an alternative, and they don't have the super yeah. high risk disease defined by aberatrone, which, by yeah. the way, is the protect category. Yeah. These patients are getting two years of ADT therapy or six months. Mostly they're getting, the getting the, the patients who are in protect would have had six months of ADT. That would have been right. standard. Yeah. So the um, ones getting longer duration were excluded. So the T three fours and all that sort of stuff weren't in. They were. They were. They were. They mostly would have had hormone therapy or hormone therapy and radiotherapy in the protect era.
And so what we're saying here is there are clearly a group of patients who are not able to have surgery um, and those patients, radiotherapy is an attractive option. We're not going to talk about the role of radiotherapy in metastatic disease, but I know there's been some nice work on that within Stampede, uh, and maybe yeah. we could talk about that right at the end, but that's not where we are. What we're talking about is these much earlier cancers where it's only six months of hormone therapy and surgery is a genuine alternative rather than something yes. which shouldn't be given because the cancer's T3 or T4 and, and not working out. So the, the, the story then is that, as you, can, as you see it, the overall benefits of radiotherapy compared to surgery are quite modest. They're, they're, they're similar to each other. Protect shows that, that you don't feel strongly yes. about one treatment or the other. And indeed, you agree with Jim that actually surveillance for a large group of these patients is the right approach. Yeah, we, we we default to surveillance for this. Yeah, if you're Gleason 3 plus 3 or 3 plus 4 with a small amount of 4, because with MRI targeted biopsies, you'd often find a little bit of 4 that you probably would have missed if you'd done transrectal ultrasounded biopsies blind, for example. So, yeah, no, we, we're we we're quite keen on, we're very keen on monitoring. And um, I, I think the decision between surgery and radiotherapy generally is one that best fits the patient's Con, you know, collection of cardiovascular risk, axial history, um, uh, you know, urinary function, all these things. And there isn't a, a right or wrong answer. Um, it's what I tell the patients as well. I said they're both good treatments. Yeah, they, they'll stop you dying of prostate cancer. The, the one, there, there is a, a, a little group where I might be inclined to agree with Jim that the treatment is that surgery might be better. So, there are patients that we pick up from time to time with really high Gleason scores, but T2 tumours, so completely organ confined. And on the MRI scan, they look to be very convincingly organ confined. And I, I think often I am inclined to think if that were me, I would have that removed. I wouldn't irradiate it. Um, and but I have to say that's you. You, you can't really identify a group that definitely benefits from within Protect. But I, we, we both myself and Declan Cahill, who's the um, surgeon I work with at the Marsden will tend to offer younger patients with very high Gleason scores and T2 tumours um, surgery. Nick, we uh, we like to surprise people on the show. Uh, we like to keep people on their toes. Um, Pace B is being presented today. That's a prospective randomised yeah. trial at Astro. It's one of the. It's a plenary session. Um, could you just describe yes. to us what the Pace program is all about and why Pace B is important? Yes, it's part of a long-term trend in, in, in prostate radiotherapy, which is that um, we started off with 32 fractions. We then went to sort of dose escalated by adding fractions. So we ended up somewhere between 37 and 40, depending on where you were in the world, which is two months of treatment. And um, we then went to reverse for so the CHIP trial um, compared in the UK 37 with 20 and showed they were just as good. Uh, 20 was just as good. And then the next round of trials, the PACE trials, have compared um, 20 with five in three different settings so far. So PACE-A compared surgery with radiotherapy on a side effect um, endpoint and showed radiotherapy was superior, particularly on sexual function, coming back to my earlier point. Um, PACE-B, which uh, my colleague Nick Van Ass is presenting today, 
compares in the sort of intermediate to low intermediate to, to low risk patients, 20 fractions with five fractions without ADT. And today they're reporting the long term biochemical outcomes, which show basically they're identical. They're very good and there's no difference between the fractionations. They previously reported the toxicity, which again shows slightly different timelines to toxicity because you've got a week versus a month of treatment. But basically, um, no real differences once you've recovered from the acute side effects. So that's big news because it means we can, we've got growing evidence that we can do, you know, here in a week, if you like, was the strap line. And particularly where you've got to travel for your radiotherapy, that's very attractive. You've got to stay somewhere for a week, not for a month. Um, and it, you're not compromising any outcomes. So it's a really important um, trial. And so PACE-C is, is the same trial, but with hormone therapy, that's yet to report. But uh, I, I would bet the result would be the same. So Nick, some, some question. It's, it's the same total radiation dose. It's really just fraction size. Is that... Yeah, no, not quite the same I'm numerical afraid. dose because, uh, 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 yes, it's biologically the same dose. It's not yeah. numerically the same dose because the, the dose is a product of time, dose, fractionation yeah. and duration and stuff. But I thought you would know that, uh, Brian. I thought you know that. <laughs> <laughs> so the number is different, but the total biological dose is, is a, well, it is the same in the sense that the effect has very clearly been shown to be the same there, both on toxicity and on cancer outcomes. And, and you, you mentioned a little bit about toxicity differences. I assume with the lower number of fractions, it's just, you know, a higher and earlier toxicity as opposed to, I don't know, longer and later. Yeah, it's essentially the area under the curve is the same, but the shape of the curve is a bit more squashed. That's all, yeah. So what you're saying, Nick, is in this intermediate risk group where surgery is an alternative, um, yeah. the, the radiotherapy option, perhaps 18 months of therapies too long six months is the adequate period of time and indeed yep. instead of giving these sort of month-long treatment you can do it in a week and get similar results isn't this now becoming yep. a lot more appealing than having a, your prostate out i would say so yeah i mean it, it's at the moment in the nhs if 20 is the standard for most although we can five for some already um if you go to the private sector yeah we'll the, the master will do your treatment in five and one of the problems about sh shrinking down the number of fractions is that most radiation centres, and that's private and NHS and so on, is and the, there's a substantial component of payment by fraction. So if you wait by to three quarters of your fractions, you potentially wait by to three quarters of your income. And prostate radiotherapy is a big component of most radiation centres activity. So, so that doesn't sound very patient focused. So coming no, back, no, to no, the, it, it it doesn't, but it's a barrier to change. It's definitely not patient focused, but it's it is a barrier to change. Uh, and Nick, so so that would what you're saying now is why is the why why is it because the trial's coming out today and the change is going to happen tomorrow, or have we known about this for a while and we just haven't adopted it yet? What's the story? Well, the data from PACE B is, which is the outcomes data as opposed to the toxicity, is literally out today. So, um, whilst I've known it was coming for a while, most people didn't. We were and, lucky to um, organise this today, weren't we, Brian? It's a miracle. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great coincidence. It's all coincidence. All of this, all these podcast successes based on coincidence, as far as I can see. Uh, yeah, but, but but we're not the only ones doing these um, what are called extreme hypofractionation trials. So, you know, I mean, the, the next round of our trials are comparing five with two. So, you know, it's when it's just one, you know, it's literally you know, like we do SBRT for a brain med or something. You just walk in one dose done. 
it possibly, it does, yes. It does. It then does beg the question where we come back to the PROTECT trial where the outcome of surveillance and radiotherapy were actually quite similar to each other. And does this mean this whole story? Is it that one is, you know, one is incredibly effective or is it actually that we're just giving massive over-treatment to these patients overall? Um, well, we know in PROTECT that if you didn't, and, and other surveillance series as well, so if you, the extreme of, of surveillance is no treatment at all until you're metastatic. So that trial has been, was done a long time ago by the Scandinavian Prostate Cancer Group, and that led to a, 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 a 5% excess of deaths from prostate cancer on the literally no treatment arm. So we know that treatment does something, uh, and we know that if you, if you more actively intervene when, you know, you get grade inflation on rebiopsy or increase Recently with us, it's MRI progression is the thing that drives B-biopsy and all the rest of it. So it, that that you've got no survival penalty, but by 10 years in Protect, half the, treat, half the patients had progressed and had treatment. So yes, the other half would, would have been over-treated. You're quite correct. But we don't know which ones they are at the start. That's the problem. Hey, Nick, aside, might... from, aside from the extreme hypofractionation, what what else is happening in the radiotherapy for localized prostate cancer world? I mean, what's the next big advance, if you can say? So, so there's an awful lot of trials going along. So historically, we've tended to give the whole the same dose to the whole prostate. Um, increasingly, what we can do, if you've got an MRI-driven diagnostic pathway, you know which the high-grade lesions are, and you biopsy them, you confirm they're high-grade, and you can see them. On your planning systems, then um, you integrate MRI into your planning systems, which are mostly CT based. You've then got the possibility of varying the dose and giving a, a field in field boost to the high grade lesion. So those trials, and again, those are, there's loads of different versions of that sort of trial going on, um, are happening in multiple countries. Um, we've got the selection of them at Marsden, um, but yeah, so loads of other people as well. So there's there's that end of the spectrum. Um, uh, yeah, the, the dose escalation, ju but just to the the bit that matters, as it were. And then the other end of the thing is 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 extending the role. Um, I know it's slightly off the point of your question into the um, sort of oligometastatic space. Can we cure oligometastatic prostate cancer? And there's a lot of trials looking at that as well. Nick, my last question. I'm a bit confused about Stampede and Peace One. In both mm -hmm. of those trials, there was an incorporation of radiotherapy to the prostate into yes. the study. And yes. there seem to be conflicting results from those two trials. Could you describe those conflicting results and your explanation about why it occurred? Yeah, so so Stampede, obviously I'm the chief investigator. Piece one, I'm on the IDMC. So I've seen both of these data in minute detail. Stampede, we randomised men with newly diagnosed metastatic disease to ADT or ADT plus um, radiotherapy to the prostate only. And we stratified our analysis by high and low volume as per the charted criteria, i.e. up to three mets is low volume in essence. The latter stages of Stampede, we had docetaxel as an additional standard of care, so we stratified by that as well. And essentially, radiotherapy improves failure-free and overall survival only in the low volume. And we've done some subsequent analyses looking at you know, what happens if you've got four METs, five METs, six METs, and essentially you've got a linear relationship. The more METs, the lower the benefits, which and it peters out somewhere around about eight to ten METs, in fact. Um, piece one did the same, did a, a four-way randomization, 
um, so plus or minus abiraterone, and plus or minus radiotherapy. And um, and then later on, they introduced docetaxel, which was a sort of stratification across the whole lot. So the problem with piece one is you've got a lot of boxes that patients can be in, and some of the boxes interacted with each other and some didn't. So for some of them, you had to do a four-way analysis. Some of them, you could do a pooled two-way analysis. So the analysis is a bit of a statistical hodgepodge with small numbers in a lot of the categories. But anyway, the bottom line, really, if you just did it out, is that um, ADT and ADT plus radiotherapy alone with no ABI um, looked quite similar. But most of this recruitment happened after we knew the aberrasterone data. So it looks as if, looks, I think, explanation as to why we saw no difference there was that both groups just got very early. Yeah, they were labelled progressing early and then they all got put on aberrasterone early. So the, the more informative randomization was the ADT aberrasterone versus ADT aberrasterone radiotherapy. And in that group, um, the, the triple therapy, if you like, comes out much better. Um, on all the outcomes, failure-free survival, time to CRPC, all these things. So uh, my interpretation would be that what piece one does is it shows that if you have ADT aberrasterone as your standard of care, adding radiotherapy if you're low volume improves your outcomes. Um, uh, and that's consistent with Stampede. So you, you give radiotherapy to the prostate in low volume metastatic disease who are getting ADT? We do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 we we would so we sort of stuck. We previously kind of stuck together two separate bits of stampede and decided that the base systemic therapy should be ADT abiraterone and and the, the radiotherapy randomization justified shoving the radiotherapy on top. And piece one is consistent with that being okay or correct. The the other thing that actually piece one showed in its primary analysis, and we're just about to present next a couple of weeks time at ESMO is that urological complications roughly half down the line if you give prostate radiotherapy. Yes. So um, so need for TURP, um, the thing we're presenting is need for nephrostomy tubes, are you've completely blocked up the lower circuit. Um, but it doesn't, it kind of doesn't matter which endpoint you pick, the outcome is always the same. You, you, if you primary radiotherapy will prevent those things happening half the time. So it's, it's a separate reason, not necessarily give radiotherapy to everyone, because not everybody gets needed TERP later on, and not everybody gets neft tubes later on, of course, by any means. But it, if you've got a bulky prostate with lots and lots of urinary symptoms at presentation, I think I, I have a very low threshold to give radiotherapy as part of their primary treatment. So, Nick, last question for me. This has been informative, real quick. So, what do you? What's the maximum number of le metastatic lesions that you'll give radiation to in an oligometastatic setting. So you do a PSMA PET scan and you have X number of lesions and you say, OK, I'm going to do radiation you know, to the primary, not depending on if it's in, but I'll radiate up to what number of metastatic lesions? So uh, at the moment, the, the answer is that we're not irradiating any as standard of care. Um, we would just irradiate the prostate. Now, in Stampede, we've capped that the number that so we're just about to start we've just got ethical approval last week for stampede two and so the randomization is up to five mets you're randomized to prostate only or prostate plus up to five sites of of, uh, of metastasis now um i don't in, in u.s centers i think mostly you're, you're sabering mets if people present oligometastatic so 
Another piece of work we're presenting at ESMO in a few weeks' time is we've done a survey of where patients relapse if they start with oligometastatic disease on their PET scan. So we've got a series of about 70 of these where we've got data on the pattern of relapse. And um, only about a quarter of those patients relapse solely at their original sites of disease. So most of them either relapse a mixture of the old sites plus new sites or just completely new sites. Um, i.e. you get a complete response in the original PET sites with your ADT aberrastrone, whatever, and then they relapse somewhere else. So to us, that is means, yeah, we very definitely still have equipoise about whether you should or should not be sabering things at the beginning. Yeah, yeah I think it's an evolving area. Tom, did you have anything else? Just, Nick, it's been a tour de force of radiotherapy and prostate <laughs> cancer. Uh, and uh, we got all sorts. We got ESMO, we got ASTRO, we got late-breaking data, we got preludes from ESMO. We certainly attempted to sink, sink Jim Cato's ship, but I'm not sure we were very successful. I think in the end you were more on the surgery side, to be honest, Nick. But anyway, neither, that's neither here nor there. Nick, it's been fabulous. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, Nick. Thanks for letting me speak. Cheers. Always a Thanks, pleasure. Nick. Right. Bye-bye.